0: Please remain standing and pray with me. Almighty God, we do pray that you would come and be among us this morning, um, even, even when this is not a confirmation service, we still pray for your, your presence to be among us and with us. Bless the, the preaching of your word here. Uh, Father, may these words prepared by the bishop, and which I will deliver to, to this congregation, may they be the words of your spirit for your people, may they enliven within us, uh, the good news, the kingdom, and may they also bring to us in, in great measure the benefits of your coming kingdom through forgiveness and healing and peace and the many things that you offer to us. So we commend ourselves to your love and care. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. If you're just, if you have arrived since the beginning of this service, you might have missed this, but maybe it's become evident by now. Um, the bishop isn't with us for this service um, in the first service, he had a bit of a, a fainting spell and, and collapsed in the back. And so at the end of the service, and so he's been rushed off to the hospital. Um, he walked out under his own um, with some help, but be praying for him throughout this service. Um, and so this is going to be a new skill for me. Uh, preach someone else's sermon. It's good. I listened to the, the first time. Uh, I wish I would have paid attention a little bit more now. Um, <laughs> But, uh, you know, I'm sure we've all been there on a Sunday. Um, I I did ask him on the way out if there was any way for a battlefield commission uh, to, you know, an emergency consecration uh, to become your bishop uh, here at Christ Church. Uh, He unfortunately turned me down. uh, So here we are. I'm just still your rector and a priest in God's church, uh, but uh, that's uh, okay for me. So uh, let's uh, go ahead and turn to uh, our scripture from Zechariah. Turn to our scripture from Zechariah, chapter 9, this morning. That would have been great. If you would have said yes, I I would have been blown away. You can't really undo that. So uh, that would have been great. Okay. So turn with me there to Zechariah, chapter 9. And we'll be uh, springboarding from this text to another one in, in Zechariah's prophecies to Israel. Um, but I want you to be able to read it along with me here again this morning as we, uh, as we go through Zechariah chapter 9. This text is, is probably a familiar one to you. Uh, it occurs in our Gospels, many of our Gospels, particularly there in St. Matthew and St. John's Gospels. Uh, And if you are a regular attender here at Christ Church, if you grew up in a liturgical church, you've likely heard this prophecy read in our gospel reading on Palm Sunday with the triumphal entry text, where Jesus is coming into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. and Indeed, that's what we hear recorded for us in Zechariah chapter 9, where it begins in verse 9, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous, right? your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And we know that passage well from those moments. And here, John, uh, the Gospels of John and, and Matthew, they draw our attention back to Zechariah, uh, and they do so in a particularly in a distinctively Jewish context. The strongest view these Gospels are speaking to is a Jewish audience. And so this passage was very meaningful for them and included one of the most crucial and specific Messianic prophecies, what we just read there in verse 9 of chapter 9, that the Messiah, the King, one day will ride into the city. And with him will be righteousness and justice. And of course, we know for us, this is the promised Christ. The word Christ is is the Hebrew word Messiah, Mashiach, which means the anointed one. It could refer to a prophet, but it also and many times refers to the king, the anointed king. And so we have the promised Christ coming in the Gospels, the son of David, who would enter the city of Jerusalem triumphantly, following the same road as his forebearer did, King David, when he entered the city of Jerusalem, riding the same royal steed, a donkey. Bishop Steve here told, uh, he has a nickname in Rwanda. Um, If you don't know much about our history as a church in our diocese, we come out of the Church of Rwanda. Uh, and so for many years, uh, the Archbishop of Rwanda was our Archbishop, and Bishop Steve held both con- his consecration and orders for, uh, as being a bishop was held both in Rwanda and the United States. And so he traveled much over to Rwanda, and he developed one bishop over there, gave him a nickname. I don't remember the Rwandan term. Does anyone remember the Rwanda term if you were here in the first service? I don't. The translation is donkey. <laughs> Because he would go from, you know, the times that he would be there, as he mentioned, there were two days that he went to 14 different villages and preached at every single one of them. And the, the bishop gave him that name saying that he was a donkey who was bearing Christ. But he also mentioned that a Rwanda donkey also means what donkey means in our language too. <laughs> So Jesus, this great king, comes riding on the royal steed, a donkey. Therefore, the triumphal entry is a bold fulfillment of this very bold prophecy that the Messiah, the king, was here now. Now. Now, if you've been at Christ Church for the last three weeks, this is what we've been going over, looking at the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God that that Jesus proclaimed. And we've been looking primarily out of Mark chapter 1, where What is the message? Jesus, Mark says, Jesus went around preaching the gospel. And what was the gospel? That the kingdom of God is at hand. The time has been fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And so here, the triumphal entry boldly fulfills this prophecy from Zechariah. With Jesus, the kingdom of God is on earth now. So putting together prophecy and the fulfillment gives us a clue to the central theme of the book of Zechariah. And that theme is this, the prophetic proclamation of the coming of God's kingdom on earth. That's what Zechariah is all about, the prophetic proclamation of the coming of God's kingdom on earth. And indeed, all the gospels are the fulfillment of that. They reveal to us the the fulfillment of the proclamation that God's kingdom is actually now here on earth. So when we read Zechariah, it helps us to have a a phrase from the Lord's Prayer floating in the background of our thoughts, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But to be clear, Zechariah proclaims the coming of God's kingdom on earth in unmistakably Jewish terms. The kingdom of God centered in the people of Israel, the land of Israel, the city of Jerusalem, and at the heart of it all, the temple in Jerusalem. Therefore, the growth of the kingdom, the ascendancy equals the ascendancy of the nation in Old Testament terms. The magnificence of the city of Jerusalem, the glories of the temple and the nations streaming into Jerusalem in in order to be folded into the worship of the people of God, the people of of Israel, and the God of Israel, Yahweh, the one and only true God, the creator of heaven and earth. The prophecies of Zechariah, these Eight visions and four major oracles focus on the promises of God to remove Israel's shame and raise it up from defeat to destroy its enemies. Again, this is what prophecies are all about here in Zechariah. To remove, God's promise to remove Israel's shame and to raise it up from defeat to destroy its enemies. To rebuild the city and the temple. Remember, the audience that... Zechariah is writing to is a people who have been stripped of everything. They've been hauled off into exile. The temple has been destroyed. The city of Jerusalem, the walls of it have been utterly decimated and torn down. And this is a prophecy about rebuilding. These prophecies had to have stretched the faith of the faithful. How could that possibly be the case? Particularly for those either in Jerusalem who were still in the land with no power, with nothing to change their circumstances, and even for those in exile, who would have been hauled away to the centers of foreign power and would have seen their dominance firsthand, how could these prophecies be fulfilled? For under Assyria and Babylon and then Persia, Judah had been reduced to a tiny province, a fraction of its former glory and wealth of backwater, a nowhere place, Jerusalem's walls were torn down, the temple was in ruins, the exiles were trickling back, but it was all burned over. It was a sad place to come home to. Yet, Zechariah proclaimed, this, all these ruins you see, this will be raised up as the center of God's kingdom plan for the world. Hard to believe. God's kingdom program on earth today is very different. Look at the end of our, our, we'll look at this more at the end of our message here this morning. Even so, the book of Zechariah is full of principles of God's kingdom program on earth that are just as true, just as important, and just as powerful now as they were then. There is one of those kingdom on earth principles that Zechariah describes in one of his visions that I want to lay before you in light of stepping further up and into our discipleship. And for those of you who are going to be confirmed or received, this is for you. And for all of us who have been baptized in the church of God and who have been confirmed, this is for us as well as, as a reminder of the call to discipleship that we have received, not only in baptism, but also in our confirmations. We need to step further in to our discipleship. Look at Zechariah. If you just flip over to the first part of Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 1, and you'll want to flip there, eighteen verses 18 through 21. This is the second of Zechariah's eight visions that begin the book So let's start back at the end of the first vision there, verse 16, and we'll read through this. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. Remember that theme of the return of the king, the return of Yahweh. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem, cut out again. Thus says the Lord of hosts, my city shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? And he said to me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. And then the Lord showed me me four craftsmen. And I said, what are these coming to do? And he said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head. And these, the craftsmen, have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. This vision is built around four horns and four craftsmen. Horns are in the scripture's Symbols of power, and at times they can be the horn of salvation, you might hear that. Our, our salvation is rooted in the horn of God, God being our horn of salvation. But at other times they can be used negatively as, as a symbol of power and aggression, of violent attack, of ripping and tearing, goring and slashing. The angel who serves as Zechariah's guide and interpreter described these horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem, the nations that have decimated God's nation. These are likely a description of the two great conquering war machines that we know from scripture, Assyria and Babylon, and the two smaller ones, though fiercely violent neighbors, likely refer to Edom and Syria. Israel was more than familiar with invaders, both from afar and from next door. And here we'll do what Bishop did in the first service. Here Bishop paused and prayed for Israel. For God's old covenant people still face such invasions and so let's pray for the peace of Jerusalem Almighty God we do come and we ask Lord that you would bring your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven a kingdom of justice And so, God, we ask that you would pour out your justice now and that you would judge those who have acted horribly against your image bearers. Who have acted horribly against your old covenant people. But we also know that your kingdom is a kingdom of peace and love. And so we pray that Through justice and on the heels of justice, you will bring peace to Jerusalem and to Israel again. And Father, we pray not only for a peace to the events that are happening now, but Father, we pray for a lasting peace that will spill out from there to go all across the world. So Father, safeguard life bring about justice, and bring peace in our time. We lift this up to you in the name of your son, Jesus, who brings everlasting peace, righteousness, and justice in this age and in the age to come. Amen. So let's go back to the prophecy, though. This prophecy is a word of promise and hope for a people who lacked it the power of the four horns is answered by the presence maybe paradoxically of the four craftsmen who terrify the powers of this present evil age eventually eventually they will become the cause of the downfall of those world powers that contest God's rule craftsmen what a profound and paradoxical statement. That should give us pause. It should raise a question in our minds. Is that a mistake? Is that a faulty translation? Is there there a range of meaning here for this Hebrew word that's translated craftsman? Is it a double entendre? Is it a metaphor? No. We might think that often metaphor dominates prophecies, but here Zechariah is is literal and straightforward. These are craftsmen. There's no mistake in the text. No hidden meaning. These are people like potters and weavers, carvers of wood and stone. They're masons and builders, metal workers. Maybe we could add plumbers. We don't want to have them absent. And what they would have been called upon to do in this moment for Zechariah's audience is obvious. Rebuild Jerusalem put stone back on top of stone, rebuild the temple, set back the walls, get to plowing again the fields, rebuild the country, rebuild the temple. These craftsmen then are the skilled workers whose calling was to participate in the everyday work of rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. Through that rebuilding of the temple, the powers of the earth would be destroyed. The powers of the earth that contest God's rule, and God's kingdom plan would be destroyed. And that is amazing. That's good news. That's the gospel. The temple that would eventually be built during this period of history was but a shadow, though, of Solomon's glorious temple that was destroyed at the exile. And we have record from the book of Ezra, chapter 3, of when the exiles returned, those who remembered those who were still alive when they left Jerusalem, those who remembered the former glories, when they looked at the temple and they saw the city of Jerusalem, they wept bitterly. When they saw the temple rebuilt, they wept because it was only a fraction of the glory that the previous temple was. But in the midst of that, Zechariah has a message for the people during this this time, and in Zechariah chapter 4, his message is, do not despise the day of small things. Do not despise the day of small things. What was beginning here in the rebuilding of the temple would grow to overturn the power systems of the world, particularly the power of violence, cruelty, warfare, aggression, injustice, and hatred. How would that come to be? How would that come to be? At the heart of that rebuilding work of overturning evil are craftsmen, everyday workers who chiseled and hammered, smelted and smithed, who wove and hung curtains, who shaped and set and mortared stones, who built a temple where eventually God would call the world to faith and to account. A work of God from this temple that was rebuilt in response to this prophecy. From that temple, God's new temple, rooted in Jesus, would come and proclaim the everlasting kingdom of God. That God was doing a new thing. An expansive thing. Far beyond our imaginations, and at times even far beyond the prophetic imaginations of Israel's prophets. Isaiah at times sees the bigger picture. Other prophets do not. And there are two mysteries at work here. One is the mystery of God's kingdom. It may look small and weak, but in fact it isn't. It may look small and weak, but in fact it isn't. We've actually looked at this two weeks ago. Three weeks ago, think of places like Matthew 13, where in Mark chapter uh, four, where we have the parable of the mustard seed, the smallest of seeds in the garden, but yet when it grows to full maturity, it's it's a plant that dominates the landscape. Then there's the parable of the hidden leaven, that almost invisible bit of leaven that penetrates every bit of the dough, every lump of dough And changes everything within it. This is the kingdom that welcomes the small, the humble. Think of Jesus welcoming the children when the disciples thought that was nonsense. Matthew 5, the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who are small. The other mystery concerns this physical temple there in Jerusalem. And Zechariah's temple, as the centerpiece of the kingdom of God on earth, will last for centuries. It will be expanded and adored, and that's what happens under Herod's rule. It will be the same temple where the infant Jesus will be brought eight days of age to be circumcised, welcomed by Simeon and Anna, and we hear their prophecies in response to Jesus' presence there as a baby. This is where Jesus himself will worship throughout his life and ministry, even as, a, even as a young adolescent all the way up to full maturity of manhood. He goes there to worship his father, where he will often teach and preach in the temple's precincts and around the temple in the city of Jerusalem. This is that same temple, the one that was rebuilt in reference to Zechariah's prophecy. And it will be the location where the church begins at Pentecost where the tongues of fire that land upon the heads of God's disciples proclaim the good news in all languages. But even in its heyday, that physical temple, it'll be bypassed and swallowed up by another seemingly weak and insignificant thing. What do I mean? Shift now back to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12, that we heard read this morning. Matthew, like Zechariah, focuses strongly on God's kingdom program on earth. His account of Jesus' life and ministry is marked by the theme of the coming of the kingdom of God. Often, Matthew's phrase is the kingdom of heaven. From the magi who come to worship the newborn king of the Jews to the decoration of the charter of the kingdom in the Sermon on the Mount to Jesus' announcements, his warnings about who will and who will not be in the kingdom. Think of Matthew 5 or Matthew 7 there. Those who think they're going to be in will find out at the gate they're not in. Did we not say, Lord, Lord? And he will say, I never knew you. Matthew chapter 8, surprisingly, and maybe good news for us, is that this centurion expresses faith, and Jesus says, this man will be in the kingdom, this Gentile. There's a strong focus throughout Matthew on the kingdom, including the climactic account of the triumphal entry that is a fulfillment of Zechariah 9 and the coming king to Jerusalem. But remember, for his listeners, even those closest disciples would assume without question that the kingdom Jesus was talking about centered in the glories of the physical temple at the heart of the renewed, glorious Jerusalem and a triumphant political, military nation of Israel. That's what they thought Jesus was bringing in right then and there. And that is why we looked at this last week or the week before, that is why Peter takes Jesus off to the side and rebukes him. When Jesus says, I have to go to Jerusalem to be rejected and killed, and Peter says, don't you know who you are? You're not to be rejected. You're not to be, you're the Messiah. You're to bring about the armies of Israel, raise them up and overthrow these Gentile oppressors. But that's not Jesus' mission in his first advent. Tucked into this, dominating conversation about the kingdom of God on earth and the assumptions, the, the wrong ones at that time from his, for his, of his listeners, is this surprising statement of Ma- in chapter 12, verse 6 of Matthew's gospel. I tell you, Jesus said, something greater than the temple is here. Something greater than the temple is here. Bold and profound Comment within the Jewish world. Heresy, even. This is what gets him killed, in part. Instead of the temple at the center of God's kingdom on earth, Jesus is pointing to himself as the place, the person to whom the world must come to learn about the true God to see who God is and what He is like, to learn about and receive forgiveness of sins and reconciliation to God. If you think back to prophecies like Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 2, there's this vision that, that Israel is again the center of the world, that Zion is this... It's this mountain that emerges above all others in the world and becomes the center of the world. And the nations flood to Jerusalem, flood to the temple to be taught the ways of God, to be taught Torah, the instruction of God. And Jesus, when he comes, he says, I am that temple. We hear him say it in John's gospel, I am the way, the truth, and the life. All who come to me will be welcomed into my Father's house, his kingdom, his oikonomia, his household. There's also a new kingdom building program going on in Jesus' gospel announcements, particularly in Matthew. In Matthew 16, Jesus says, I will build what? My church. I'll build up my body, the body of Christ, a living temple. As we heard earlier in our Easter season, we went through 1 Peter, living stones, a temple made of living stones. This living temple will be made up of people who come alive to God through faith in his King, in Jesus Christ. Make no mistake about it, at the heart of the kingdom program, even in the Old Testament, is a personal God who wills to be known to be in relationship, to be followed and worshipped and obeyed, who offers forgiveness and reconciliation to those who come to him to seek his instruction, to follow his will. But now we see that one greater than the temple is here. So no longer do we travel to Jerusalem, to a physical temple to meet and know God. We come to Jesus himself. We come to Jesus to learn about forgiveness and atonement and reconciliation with God to learn of that we in our everyday vocations are here to glorify God and work through whatever it is to bring about His kingdom in our lives. In connection with Him, we become the living temple of God on earth through which the world can come home. The world that's not the exile of the Jews, but it's the exile from the garden. Having been removed because of rebellion, Jesus is now making a way for us to come back. And we ourselves, as the body of Christ, stand and proclaim the way, and embody the way, and invite others to join us. If the new building program is what Jesus says it is, the building of the church through which the world can come to Jesus, then now we have something we need to consider. How is the church built? How is the kingdom of God built? Evangelism. We need more living stones. It's a half-built kingdom. The walls are being erected again. The rooms are being laid out, but we need more living stones. So we must proclaim that good news. Discipleship, those stones must be set in place. The mortar must be set around them. There must be a building up and a strengthening of the body of Christ to come into full maturity, deeply rooted in Christ, so that everyone is contributing to the health and growth of the whole. We see that clearly in Ephesians 4. How do we build the church? Through holiness, virtue. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. How can we be anything else but holy? Strive for that holiness. This is the work of pastoral care, not only by those of us who are set apart for that ministry, but by you who minister and care within your families and within your life groups and with your neighbors. How do we build up this church, the kingdom of God, through prayer? Through the Lord's Prayer, praying that God's will will come on earth as it is in heaven. And then lastly, all of this culminates and climaxes in worship. How do we build the kingdom of God? Well, we do what we were made to do. We worship. We are the temple of God, out of which the praises of creation are brought to the Creator. And the principle of the kingdom work of God from the vision in Zechariah 1, 18 through 21, is that everyday worker, the everyday worker who uses his or her skills in partici- is participating in the building up of the true church and contributing to the overflow of the powers of, of evil and destruction. Yes, the everyday work of men and women, youths and children in this everyday world. Who in their work and play and school bring glory to God. Giving testimony to their creator and their savior. Who prays for their friends. Who seeks to grow as disciples. This is for all of us. Not just those who are going to be confirmed this day. And if you're waiting for confirmation, seek it now. To help others grow in faith through prayer, teaching and encouragement. Who live to make a contribution for the good of the world and our neighbors, to live for the life of our neighbors in addition to the glory of God in all sorts of areas of our life in this world, to walk a path of good deeds as we were created to, Ephesians 2.10, God has made us for this, to walk a path of good deeds in this world using our skills and opportunities to build the church that is centered in Jesus, his cross, resurrection, and ascension. And as we conclude this morning, there are questions for all disciples, especially for those who are going to be confirmed and received this morning, but they're for all of us. What craft have you been given to do? By which God is glorified and the church is built up. There is no pyramid in the church with clergy, these callers at the top, and plumbers at the bottom, and doctors and lawyers somewhere in between. There is no pyramid in the church. All of us are given a craft, skills, a vocation to embody for the life of the world and for the glory of God. What's your, what are you gifted and called to do in terms of evangelism, in terms of discipleship and holiness, of prayer and worship? In what ways is your work, your dreams of career or vocation an opportunity for being Christ in the world? Your relationships in your neighborhood, among friends and family, your ministries in the church. In here, Bishop didn't name them, but their names are in here. These are my friends <laughs> Josh and Grace Thompson. They're Matthias's godparents, along with Mary Coburn. They, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, they sold their home and moved to the poorest community in Raleigh. And they bought a home to be present. They put out flyers and walked around the neighborhood and the people were like, y'all need to go in. You're not safe here. Well, they prayed for the community. Then they put out flyers and told people, knocked on the doors of their neighbors and said, we're going to get together and read the Bible. And that first night, what 100 people showed up at their house. And when then East Raleigh was beginning to switch over and people were buying up the property and turning these homes into significant wealth Uh, and people were getting kind of removed from these neighborhoods josh and grace bought up homes out of their own money and fixed them up and allowed people to rent from them at a low price so they wouldn't be moved out so quickly out of the neighborhoods this is just just an example what is god calling you to The centerpiece of the kingdom building program of God in this generation is faithful Christians like you. The church being faithful for the sake of the world and for the glory of God. So how is God gifting and calling you to faithful, daily, relentless, loving, step-by-step, world-changing participation, no matter how small? world-changing participation in that kingdom-building, evil-destroying program. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.